Today's episode of The Movies That Made Her But Not Me is sponsored by FilmCred. Providing new film critics and writers in-depth feedback on their writing, FilmCred is made up of a community of collaborators dedicated to publishing insightful reviews, interviews, video essays, and coverage of film festivals. Visit film-cred.com to learn more. I'm Minna Stein. And I am Lauren Lloyd, and you are listening to the movies that made her, but not me. Today, we have a very special guest, Stefan Deckant, here to talk with us about his career in art direction and production design. He's worked various roles on a number of incredible films, including production designer on The Tragedy of Macbeth, supervising art director on the 2010 Alice in Wonderland, and as an illustrator on Jurassic Park The Lost World. But today, Stefan is here to talk with us about his time as the art director on Avatar, a movie we've discussed previously here on the movies that made her but not me, and also as a storyboard artist on the Polar Express. So, let's set the scene. Well, you coming? Where? Why, to the North Pole, of course! This is the Polar Express! The North Pole? I see. The movie is The Polar Express. The first feature-length movie to use exclusively motion capture, this 2004 film is about one boy's journey to the North Pole on the Polar Express train. On his adventure, he learns about faith, friendship, bravery, and how sometimes you just have to believe. The year is 2004. George W. Bush is re-elected. Pixar's sixth feature film, The Incredibles, is released. The European Union adds 10 new nations. The world's tallest bridge is opened in France. And NASA launches a pilotless mission to study Mercury. I was also four years old and seeing my first movie in the movie theater, The Polar Express. So, for this episode, I will ask Stefan first, when was the first time that you heard of the Polar Express? Let's see, I think that book came out in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, I think it's an 80s book. So, by then, you know, I was in college, and so my attachment to Christmas or Christmas ephemera wasn't... It was there. It was something where I would see those illustrations and I would see that book, but I wasn't familiar with it. You know, at the time, let's see, it was 2002 when I started working on that film. So I would have been um, 30, 33. And still, I didn't have kids at that time. So I, I didn't have an attachment to the book. Um, I had a long history with with Zemeckis. Well, long in terms of, you know, I was very, fairly young when I got into the film industry, and I had worked on um, Forrest Gump. Really? Uh, yeah, I worked on Forrest Gump when I was twenty three. That's when I first met Bob, and then uh, I, I developed a deeper relationship with him and his production designer and his producer uh, Joan Bradshaw. And, uh-huh. and, and so the producer Steve Starkey on contact. And, and so that kind of set the ball rolling and I worked with him as a storyboard artist and whatnot. So um, that, that, that was my relationship to the 
to the uh, to those two entities, both Bob and the book. And actually, Rick Carter, Bob's production designer, called me and said, "Listen, we're Bob's got the rights to Polar Express, and so he, what Rick was doing is, and Steve Starkey, Bob's producer, was pulling together." I think there were like seven of us uh, who would meet with Bob and then Bob would kind of go through the story and we'd pitch ideas and draw storyboards and people would go and draw, draw artwork and then Bob would write up part of his outline and then we'd get that FedEx to us and then we'd read it and then we'd meet with him oh, that's so uh, two weeks later. Yeah. So that that was kind of my involvement. So Rick Carter, who is kind of my mentor, he, he hired me out. I dropped out of college. What were you in Jurassic Park? Were you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but what were you majoring in in college? So you made that leap, and that's where you ended up, right? In that, I was majoring in graphic design, okay. and um, but I, I grew up in the in the Midwest outside of Cleveland, and I didn't have access, yeah, to the big city, basically. So I was very limited on what I thought graphic design was. I thought it was commercial art. I really thought I would have a career drawing people and. Hey, uh, Haynes slacks for um, <laughs> Sears magazine or something like that. And, yeah. um, and so at the University of Cincinnati, I, I was like, oh, my God, this is all about typography. I, I don't care about typography. And actually, my father encouraged me. He encouraged me to say, I think you're in the wrong, you're studying the wrong thing. I think you should study film. I think film's what you're interested in. And so he encouraged me in that. And then UC had an internship program, a co-op program, yeah. and you would go and work for different um, entities. And I met a woman who um, was very kind, and she, she was wonderful. She was one of the artists there, and she said, look, designers, and she said, um, what kind of firm do you want to work in? And I said, I was more interested in visual effects, and, and, uh, and, and I wanted just to kind of finish with school and then go to USC and study film. Mm -hmm. And she uh, she said she had a friend who uh, was the head of the optical department at Industrial Light Magic, which is Lucasfilm. Whoa. And she set me up with him. His name was Stuart Robertson. I called him up. And, and Lauren, you would know this. I mean, if somebody called you up and said, I'm interested in producing, can I meet you in a month? I don't know what your reaction would be to that. Yeah. And Lauren said yes. And so I bought a plane ticket and went out. And, and just to shorten up the story, um, I kept that relationship with Stuart. I, uh, I worked for Saul Bass. I worked at his design department. And so I was making a move towards film. And through the people I met, um, there just happened to be an opportunity on Jurassic Park where they were, they were doing what we call as previs. But they... Um, yes, yes. They, didn't, they called it animatics at the time. And I had a friend who was an art director on that film and he asked me if I was interested in working on it. I really wanted to leave school and work at ILM. I knew Jurassic Park was coming there. So I had a professor that was just very accommodating. We made up our own class. And what it was, I wrote a screenplay for the T-Rex attack. And then I storyboarded it. And then because it was graphic design, I, 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 I typeset it and put it in a book. And that book actually got me in front of Rick Carter, who was the production designer. And then he knew I knew the software and they didn't have a lot of money and it was a non-union position at the time. So they paid me as a PA. So I got hired to work on Jurassic Park. I took a year off and, and left. And, and it was only after I got the job that I contacted the company that made the software to tell them that I had lied 
and said, I knew the software, but I didn't. And could they help me? Could they send me a manual? And, and they were very helpful, too. They sent me a manual. I took classes. And, You're a big liar. I was. I, and then when I was working there, I would work all day. I knew that they didn't know how fast it was going to take me to model a T-Rex. So as long as the next day something was there, um, it was worth it. <laughs> so, so I've been very lucky. And, and, and because of that, that, Rick became a mentor uh, to me. I, I, he, he used to collage. He would, he would come up with his designs by taking uh, photographs and Xeroxing them in different sizes and, and collage. And that's how he would kind of brainstorm to come up with his design ideas. And, and I taught him Photoshop. And, uh, and then he guided me through what it was to be a storyboard artist. And everyone was so generous on that film. Wow. And, uh, and so Rick introduced me to Bob on, the, on Forrest. He, he, Forrest Gump, he, he, I have another project I'd like you to, to work on. And, and, and so that, that was kind of how I got interest, introduced to Bob. Well, you're very talented. You know, it shows with the people that you work with. But you also must be the coolest guy for people, you know, you meet them and they, and they become your friend and you have long-term relationships that's that's awesome i think i think it's being honest with people and i think i really do feel like that you if you i fell into um i just fell in with really wonderful people you know like it was i, I got like on the second jurassic park i was i was doing animatics again and whatnot but i wanted to be in these meetings with steven yeah. so i told rick you know what we should do uh, laser discs, they, they have these supplements, and I have this great video camera. I should get into these meetings and videotape them, and then we could we could use them for the laser disc. And yeah. uh, he was like, "That's a great idea." I think they all got lost. I turned. The, I have copies of them. I have a VHS copies, but I gave all my high eight copies over to Amblin. But it was that kind of thing where I, I, I maybe less. As a fifty-year-old, I don't I don't take those risks as much as I did when I was in my twenties, where I was really pushing and wanting to learn and wanting to be around these people. And at the same time, they were just super generous to me. Kathy Kennedy was really generous. Yeah. Stephen was. Uh, I didn't have that close of relationship with Stephen, but but Dennis Muren, who you know uh, pioneered a lot of those visual effects, they, they were really important to me. And, and just to kind of round this out to maybe the end of the conversation is I, I take that as really my charge for the next generation. Yes. And, and, and for for um, the 20 year olds I meet, if someone did call me up and said, can you meet me for a lunch in a month? I, I, I would say yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. And we got off the track there. I think <laughs> my fault. No, no, it's OK. But, no, it's but very- I think it will tie back into polar express is that yeah and then and, and the avatar and, you, and the, the conversation with the avatar whatever you 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 see those films and you have to react honestly to those films what what mm-hmm. they do for you that don't do for you but one of the things for me as a creator of those films is there's this other part where it's the creation and it's 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 its own separate thing and and i and i try to make that really um Maybe precious is the wrong word. Oh, but no. I, I try to be protective of that um, creativity because, uh-huh. like, my first film was Jurassic Park. My second film was <laughs> Forrest Gump. My third was Waterworld. And that's oh, when I realized that two years 
working with people could be maybe more important or just as or more important than those two hours sitting down in that theater the, the people i met dennis gasner nancy Haig, you know both kevin's kevin costner and kevin reynolds well wow. some, something that i find so interesting about the polar express and also um avatar as well but like something that i think connects them outside of the motion capture is that performances aside i think the thing that you remember from those movies more than the performances is the images right like when you think about the polar express you think about that image of the train pulling into the station with the snow and you you think about that more than you think about the performances and same with avatar it's about the world more than it is about Mm -hmm. the characters themselves and so i'm wondering when you know you were talking about like being in those rooms and and you know throwing ideas around like how do you um is you could just sort of like walk us through the process of coming up with those images as i'm sure they were on um storyboard for the polar express and sort of like do you know the images when you draw them or when you storyboard them like oh this is what people are going to remember no it was a it was a process of discovery i think so we started that you know we had we had the van alsberg book right and it's interesting because I've worked on two projects where, like, I just pulled it out today for this. You know, the Van Allsburg book is 15 illustrations and 29 pages. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, not much different what I was working on uh, where the wild things are, which is, I think, 18 illustrations. Oh, my God. And a book, the, the book has its own tonal qualities, right? Mm-hmm. It's a really gentle, beautiful book and i think as a child when you go through there you're the director you know you you can control how long you lay on a on an image and how that image translates when you go to the next page and and then what's between there when you're when your parents read it to you you're still the editor in some respect in in terms of like i know my kids don't turn the page now now you can turn the page Mm -hmm. so you you so once it becomes Bob's story, which it does become, then it doesn't become Chris's story. It's Bob's. Then it's trying to figure out what that tonal quality wants to be. And, and, and for Bob in the images, we didn't know what that was going to be. A, a movie called waking life had just come out. And so there was this thought like, well, could we, use these new high definition cameras and we shoot Tom and and the other actors on flats, basically painted flats that aren't completely dressed. And then we run a filter on it so that can look like pastel and colored pencil. So that was one idea. And then the other idea was, well, is it, is it live action with blue screen? And we really have it. And it really wasn't until it wasn't until Bob came in one day and said, I think Tom should play the little boy as well, that motion capture came into it. So mm-hmm. those were all parts of the process of what is what is it technically going to be? And then totally, there were illustrators on there. There was the Doug Chang had, he, he came from Industrial Light Magic. He had been working, he had worked with Rick, I think, on the visual effects of Death Becomes Her and I think on one of the Back to Future movies. And he was feeling, I think, pushed aside on the Star Wars films he was working on. So he had formed his own company called Ice Blink. So Rick brought uh, Doug Chang in 
and his illustrators and another guy named uh, James Klein, and they started creating imagery so that some of the touchstone pieces would actually be Doug and his guys looking at the illustrations from, from Polar Express and then, okay, what would this look like in a movie? What does this look like in our movie? Which is a different tone mm-hmm. than yeah. is in, in Chris Van Allsburg's. And I think it leans more into, because we're, we're, ultimately Doug became a co-designer with Rick, where Doug and Rick were, and Bob were taking the movie. I know James Klein, when he was illustrating, his would be a little bit more um, in tune with the Van Allsburg, but there was concern about how crisp those images could be. So those images started like a benchmark, right? So those guys started cranking out images. I say cranking out, but you, we move, or, you know, you have to move pretty quickly. Uh, so, so they're starting to kind of create, you know, what does the world look like? And then I was on there with um, uh, Simon Wells and Phil Keller and myself, and we were storyboarding. And what we would do is we would just talk about the scenes. And um, I felt a relationship to the little boy because as a child, I loved trains. I was very nostalgic. I grew up in the Midwest, so Christmas was very important. And and I was, you know, in the 70s. So it was just, you know, there's a commercialization with everything. So the whole thing was kind of a stew that... I fell into, and I remember my partner at the time would look at my board just because I think you're just drawing yourself in there. And I'm like, yeah, a little bit. Um, <laughs> and so I would just, it would just be like this dialogue with Bob. Like he would lay out how a scene would happen and then we could riff back with him. So the first scene I did was like the the the, the boy in the bedroom and and the Polar Express coming that was all pretty much laid out by Bob in terms of like he had an outline. He's going to go do this. He goes to the room the, or he goes to the corner. He grabs his flashlight. He looks in the world encyclopedia. What I like about storyboarding with Bob when I used to do that is that he doesn't tell me every shot. He just kind of goes, okay, the boy's going to go over here. These are a couple shots. He gives me the backbone and then I go in and start drawing so it's like musicians you know mm-hmm. like someone's laying down a line and then you're yeah. going i'm gonna play i'm gonna play a little bit of trumpet here is that too much do you like that and then when you have other artists with you they're they're upping your game so and so we all broke it up in different parts and you know and we just pitch ideas and they either went somewhere or they didn't go somewhere you know i remember talking with rick saying i think like when you get to the North Pole, we should, we should anchor something there. We were talking about that. I was talking about Paris and the Eiffel Tower. So like, oh, well, it's the world's largest Christmas tree. That, and these ideas, I'm just telling you how it happened. Yeah. But mm-hmm. They're your ideas until the director gets it. And then they're theirs. So I have no ownership after an idea is taken. I'm just trying to provide fertile ground, enjoy the moment, and... And and give something that somebody else. It's like it's like you're pitching, but you want the other guy to hit the ball. So you're you're really trying to get it over the plate so that Bob can take it somewhere. Uh-huh. So I don't know if that answers your questions, but that, on the visual side, that was one thing. And then on the storyboards, we we would just have this conversation every two weeks, and then Bob would modify this the, his outline, and then we would keep going, and then 
And we just built up, we built up volumes and volumes and volumes of storyboards. Mm -hmm. I, I thought we just, that helped lay it out. I thought it was really beautiful how you were talking about, um, like, kind of, like, mixing uh, literature and film and saying that, like, a child reading a book is the director and the editor and, yeah. like, sets the pace. I think that's such a, an interesting idea that really translates in um, in the mm -hmm. Polar Express. I think that's something that's magical about the motion capture is that it's, like, real people, but it looks like a storybook still. Um, and so you kind of, like, get the storybook quality to, like, Tom Hanks, for example, or Josh Hutcherson or whoever, like, the actor is. Um, I'm wondering how, because I know you also did work on um, Alice in Wonderland, and I know that it was a different kind mm -hmm. of work that you were doing on it, but I'm wondering, like, how you were talking about different, you know, whose ideas they were and, like, the difference between the book ideas versus your ideas versus the director's ideas. And I'm wondering how much of a weight you put on the original, like, source text and how that's how that gives you a different, like, artistic vision than if you were working like, on a movie. A movie like, that doesn't have a source text. Like, what is the difference between storyboarding or coming up with the world for those different kinds of materials i have to let the director lead in that and then my responsibility is to the director i might have my own thoughts about that but when i'm hired i need to be i'm in a relationship with that director right yeah. like like so i'm going to jump to another a project if that's okay just mm -hmm. real quick of course. Mm -hmm. when i was working with kk barrett on that spike jones you know it's like oh so let's talk about how that bedroom changes oh we're not doing that <laughs> you know mm -hmm. he was like i was like a little crestfallen because as a child that was one like no stop reading i need to stay on that page yeah so i need i let the director the director holds that weight mm -hmm. for me it's important to be um in sync with the director like i i've described the way i work is empathetic and before my first production design gig i like i said i told you how important rick carter is to me he pulled me aside and he, he said do you know what the first rule of production design is and um i said no i don't and he said it's the golden rule do unto others and the meaning of that is if you were the director what would you want that storyboard artist to be providing for you. Yeah, sometimes there is this kind of push, like, hey, could we do this or whatnot? But you really want mm -hmm. them to be in sync with you and take you to the place that you're trying to go. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't have the weight of the original on me. I separate those two things. Mm -hmm. What I have is the, is the is kind of the dance that I'm doing with the director to kind of pitch an area. And that's where Rick taught me, like, that it's your idea until it's theirs. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I, I, that's just a really good place to be. You can enjoy that collaboration, but you don't need the ownership of it. Mm -hmm. And so I really want that director to be where they're making it. So, so like, if it's Joel and Ethan and how they're doing True Grit, um, I'm familiar with the novel. I'm familiar with the 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 original movie john wayne yeah mm -hmm. film but i'm 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 i gotta be in the joel and ethan space so with bob i need to 
I need to be in that space. I have Polar Express. I have a love for that book, but I I keep those things separate. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're just always floating around in the creative environment, which is that's right. It's a, right. It's kind of like a roving fielder. Like do, do, do you? I I describe it when I work that it's like skiing. I want to keep my my legs flexible. <laughs> I, I want to be able to kind of roll with it, and and at the same time, I want to give something back. You know, like one of the things was like, how do we get? Like, how can we get the characters on the front of that? I can't remember how this happened. I only remember my response to it. If we already knew the characters wanted to be on the front of the train, or Bob wanted them to be on the front of the train. And I go, do you remember on Golden Pond? And the whole room just blasted out laughing. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Just remember that Henry Fonda, he's on the front of the boat, and, and, and the kid is driving it, and it's like, go port, go go you know, starboard mm-hmm. to try and that all became the, the impetus for you know the train going off the track and going down the road it's bob it's not my idea but again that's what i mean by like being the, the that's a special environment and then mm-hmm. you if you can back that up with some drawings all the better <laughs> you know then you have a job <laughs> so that became a set piece the, of the train yeah, and the yeah. Frozen stuff, fantastic. Yeah. So basically, um, expanding from a short book, um, mm-hmm. you the idea was to, of course, make it make sense and make it, yeah, dramatic, but also to fill it with um, set pieces of uh, events yeah. of, yeah, yeah, and, and those all came from Bob, and, and Bob's cinema is a very, it's almost like animation where it's that push pull kind of thing mm-hmm. you know, it's very it can be cartoonish and i don't mean that as derogatory mm-hmm. it, it has animated quality and so i think you you have where the book is somewhat gentle the the, the zemeckis movie is a, is a zemeckis movie you yeah, know, in terms of like being on it, with those set pieces yeah that movie's scary and magnificent it's breathtaking also like with my childhood christmas obsessions uh, the snow globes too. So there's something in its artifice that might bump people, or, or I've heard you know you, the critiques. It doesn't to me because it, it's a. It, there's something that I'm bringing to it out of my own personal experience mm-hmm. as a child and snow mm-hmm. globes and that kind of artifice and that kind of dreamlike quality. You know, you you either how you react to a film is just what you purely. It's, it's what's intuitive, to, or, or that's not the right word. It's, it's you, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there's no right or wrong to it. You can debate about it. But to that one, there's something that I'm bringing, I know that I'm bringing to it out of my own childhood when I watch it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't, uh, I'm sure I read the book, but, you know, I don't remember anything. Um, mm-hmm. And I saw the movie again. I, I, I don't mm-hmm. even know if I saw the movie the first time when it, when it came out, but mm-hmm. like that magnificent scene with the dancing waiters. What? Oh, the train going down the, you know, down the slopes. Yeah. Oh, it, it, my hands sweat. It was dizzying. The, <laughs> the, the first part with the dancing waiters, that has a lot to do with Phil Keller, who's, a, who's an exceptional storyboard artist. I was, one of the reasons I became an art director is because I was really a jack of all trades. When I was drawing, I, I couldn't draw that fast because... I'd have to think about my figures. I have to think about light. I have to think about line weight. 
Phil is so good that that stuff is second nature. It's like a, a basketball player doesn't think, like a great basketball player doesn't think about, I'm dribbling and then I go for right. a shot. They're in it. They, that's right. So it's the form and, the, and what they're doing. And Phil was like that. And he worked with Bob on that dance routine. And I don't know how much that all got choreographed together, but I, in terms of a choreographer, because I was only on that show as a storyboard artist, but I know that Phil started, there was a bit of a brainstorming session that was Simon Wells, myself, Rick Carter, and Phil. And then Phil really took it over. He could just draw like a maniac. And what we were trying to do was like, could we make an animated film in less time than it took a traditional animated film? And so it was, it was less voices in the room. And, and I think Phil was just a very strong voice. And then him and, 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 and Bob came up with that, the beginnings of that. I, I got to assume that when, it, when the song was written, all that other elements came in. And I don't know how it was captured. Um, now, I think at the time, it's been so long since I did it. You know, that was a very small capture volume. Like you, you, I think it might have been 15 feet by 15 feet where you can act. And then I think the faces were done separately. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it was a really kind of bleeding edge of technology thing. So, so for that, 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 that's what I remember of it, of, of the dance sequence. The long <laughs> ticket ride. And again, you know how you tell these stories. And so they might, you might be creating your own myth. I believe how that came out of was Ken Ralston coming back and talking with Bob how much each shot was going to cost. <laughs> so, so Bob going, all right, well, what if I did this? And, but it's also a way that that ticket could take the view. There, the, he, Bob really wanted to have all the, the, the images from, from the book. And Bob is very um, orthodox in terms of point of view. Like when we did Castaway, he would go, well, whose point of view is seeing the plane from the outside? you got to mm-hmm. be on the inside. Mm-hmm. And so that he could pull the point of view, the ticket allows the camera and the audience then to have the ticket's point of view. And then that felt legitimate to Bob so that we could now get out and get those wider shots of the train, but be attached to a point of view. Yeah, it was uh, truly beautiful. <clears throat> like I didn't care. I didn't particularly care if he got that ticket back for the hero. <laughs> but I yeah. of the ride of that. I was like, what? Yeah. And that's what it's called. <laughs> that sequence is called the ticket ride. Oh my god. And also there was two other things that I thought were magnificently clever. One is this when he's reading the book and you and you shoot through the words of the book? Yes. That was always, that was Bob's idea. Because I, I storyboarded that sequence. Where, where he, it's, basically he's finding all these doubts. I mean, all these, you know, he's finding evidence that's piling yeah. up and creating these doubts. And so, and, and you know, Bob wanted that camera to slide into, into the book and back. You know, Bob, it's interesting. And I can't discuss why. But in his next film, but Bob is always moving that camera. It was one of the things I learned as an art director is, you know, Lauren, you know this, but for people who are listening, you need to move the walls of the sets out of the way when you're shooting. It's called wilding. And when you're making a set for Bob, everything's got a wild because that, that camera needs to keep fluid. And, and so he, I think that's what he enjoyed 
that, I think that's part of why he went into his his motion capture world. He just gave him such freedom with that yes. camera. We were doing stuff like that in What Lies Beneath, where we actually had the camera sink below the floor and look up. And then I think there, there were some objects that fell down above on top of the camera. But I think that, you know, all that is Bob. That that's that's his that's his vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's some of the hard things to do when you go from one director to another is it, you're you're so much in the vocabulary of one director to to, to kind of get your own internal transmission to to go to the next director can always be kind of tricky. Well, I spent, that, that was all Bob. I spent a little bit of time as a casting director, and that's the same kind of a thing. You have to get into that director's head. What do you think is mm-hmm. handsome? What's sexy? What's dangerous? Yeah. You have to really yeah. get in their head. It's also, that reflection in the hubcap. <laughs> Yes. That's a great shot. That was all written down. That was all Bob's. That was a really long, it was even a much longer sequence at uh, one time. And uh, we trimmed it down. Um, yeah, yeah, when it's funny because I don't see those as the images from the movie. I can see the storyboards I drew <laughs> of those, those things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to this week's episode, part one of our interview with Stefan. We are so honored and so grateful to have him on our podcast for not only one episode, but two. So join us next week for the second part of our interview, where we fold the conversation from this episode into a larger conversation about the Polar Express, how it relates to his work on Avatar and his career as a whole. Thank you to Antonio Ortiz for composing our theme and all other music on this podcast. Be sure to follow us at Movies Made Her on Instagram and Twitter to stay up to date on episode releases, the movies we'll be covering, and all things podcast related.